0: WHP.
1: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
2: Welcome to the show. We will have a fish wrap for you later on in the hour, as well as a conversation with Natalia Munoz. First, we begin with Natasha Waraku, who is a professor of uh, sociology at Tufts University. She's the author of a book titled The Diversity Bargain, and her newest book is titled Race at the Top. Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. Professor, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I would like to read back to you one short paragraph, which I think gets us into a large discussion of your book and the important topics, including uh, topics involving race, more broadly speaking, uh, in American schools. Let me read you this. This is from a chapter titled, The Racial Divides of Extracurricular Excellence. The American commitment to extracurricular activities, especially high school sports, runs deep. Most U.S. schools spend more per pupil on sports teams than they do on math education. In contrast, in both India and China, high school sports teams are rare. The priorities are likely related to college admissions. Chinese and Indian universities pay little attention to activities beyond academics when admitting students. In contrast, being a top athlete can get you into a good college in the U.S., even if your grades aren't stellar. At Harvard, just 6% of applicants who are not athletic recruits are admitted, compared to 86%, 86% of recruited athletes who apply. At the nation's top liberal arts colleges, one in five students admitted. One in five at the top liberal arts colleges, one in five students admitted is a recruited athlete. At Amherst College, more than one third of admitted students come through sports recruiting. I found that astounding. Professor, help me understand why the world works that way.
3: So yeah, first, Bill, thanks so much for having me here um, on your show. So, in terms of uh, athletic recruiting, this is an old tradition in the United States, um, and you know it stems from this uh, this sort of uh, tradition of sports in college and wanting to kind of have sort of well-rounded young men. Of course, many of these, most of these colleges were all men. um, Not too long ago, certainly half a century ago, almost all of them were, and so um, this was part and parcel of admissions. And as college athletics became more and more competitive, this became um, a part of college admissions. And so the way college admissions works in the United States is that there is, there are so many different parties who have interest in what the admissions office does. And we're talking about these now, very selective colleges like Amherst college, like, you know, all of these liberal arts colleges where, you know, there are so many more very well-qualified young people who would thrive on these campuses than there is space for. And so then they have to make these decisions. And so, you know, the coaches come and say, well, here's a strong student. And by the way, um, I really need a, my, my pitcher on the baseball team is graduating. I need a, I need a pitcher. This is like, the, you know, one of the best pitchers in the country this year. Um, or, you know, the development office will say, you know, um, here's a strong student who, by the way, their parents, um, just made a big donation. So, you know, we want to kind of keep the wheels greased And can you take a special look at this person? And, you know, the director of the orchestra might say, you know, my, my first oboist just graduated and here's someone who is strong academically and also, you know, we could use this player. So this is sort of how they kind of create a class in these universities. And sports has, you know, become an increasing, you know, for many years now has played a kind of large and, you know, growing role in admissions as they've, especially as they've become so selective, Uh, it becomes another route into um, selective colleges. I
2: read no, it just goes back some years, I think, something that I thought was, uh, that encapsulated a bit of this. And it's, it was this statement that Amherst College, I think that was what we were talking about, isn't actually looking for well-rounded individuals to be in the class. They're looking for a well-rounded class, which is they want the world's or the country's probably the world's best oboist going to college. They want the best first baseman. They want the best uh, 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 spoken word artist. And so they create this class of the best of all sorts of different activities, but not necessarily the most accomplished students, most accomplished academically, although the uh, test scores for Amherst College when they were all public were just off the charts, almost literally off the charts in terms of how good they were. So square that circle for us. How, how does that work out?
3: Yeah, some people call this like the pointy thing, right? That like you need to be really, really good at one thing because that's kind of get catch the admissions officer's eye. The way to think about this is that um, there again there are more highly qualified overqualified young people than there are spots for, for in a place like Amherst College so what do they do right so then you've got to it's about it's not about like cutting people from the applicant pool it's really about pulling people out right these admissions rates are well under 10 percent at this point in places like Amherst and so um, what makes a person stick out so an application sticks out if they are you know the top um, you know pitcher in the country the top oboist in the country and these are the things that make people kind of stand out from the crowd and that's how you get that and admissions offices also do talk about creating um a class there's actually a book called creating a class it's all about college admissions but they really are about creating a diverse kind of uh cohort where you know everyone brings something to the table and so this is the kind of language that they use as well um and you know of course academics is you know I, I, I don't want anyone to, listening to think that academics doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. That's the sort of baseline, right? You're in the game if you are a very, very strong student, right? But being a very, very strong student is not enough, given that you know these are, you know, what I had, um, you know, Oh Yen Poon calls them highly rejective colleges, right? They're in the businesses of rejecting students, not of selecting, of accepting, because most people are rejected. And then you have to figure out, okay, how do we who are the ones that we're going to
2: select Harvard could fill its freshman fresh first year class excuse me Harvard could fill its first year class just with applicants who are first in their college, in in their high school class academically the entire class could be number 1 of high school seniors in their respective classes uh, and they could actually fill i think two or three classes with those number 1 Students. It's like number two is probably not good enough. That's, <laughs> that said, what, what I would like to understand more, and this gets into the uh, a crucial piece of your book, uh, Professor Warku, which is what is this competition between Asian Americans and whites in suburban schools in particular? And how does that competition manifests, manifest itself, particularly around this question of extracurriculars? It's a fascinating yeah, so, part of your book.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, so again, I want to emphasize, everybody is trying to do well academically, but um, uh, parents have slightly different foci in terms of what they are really kind of emphasizing or kind of going above and beyond in um, in this town. And again, I also want to emphasize that there's competition among everybody. It's not just between, you know, Asian Americans and whites. It's like everybody's competing with everybody. These are Communities. This is a suburban community that is high le- has high levels of income. You know, you have to have a lot of money to be able to live here. High levels of education, um, and with that brings a lot of resources to help kids do well in school. And so, but the uh, immigrant Asian parents, these are mostly Indian and Chinese, um, highly skilled migrants. You know, come through highly skilled visas to the United States, and so have done very well academ um, in the education systems in India and China, that are most are almost exclusively academic and test based, right? So they kind of understand that system. They do well in that system. That's what brings them to this, to this suburb. And then they are, they sort of impart those skills and those ways of um, getting to success on their children. So they really highly emphasize academics, you know, employ employ their children to take as many, you know, AP honors classes as they can. Um, they, you know, have them, you know, when they're young, sometimes go to extracurricular math classes or in the summer do an academic class. Um, again, because this is, this was the norm with, when they were growing up, almost everybody goes to, you know, test prep after school, um, in these countries, if you're, if you're college bound in the U S the U S the kind of white U S born parents are much more, um, You know, come from a higher education system. Again, most of these parents have gone to selective colleges in the United States and they have a more holistic view, in part because that's how college admissions is done here. They kind of get your kid also needs to do be really good at some extracurricular, really focus on that, pour some energy into that. So, you know, they would tell their kids, look, don't take more than one AP class because you need time for your theater or what have you. And so that was the slight difference. Everyone wanted their kids to do well in school, but the Asian parents tended to have a much more singular focus on academics, whereas the white parents, a lot of them used this word balance, right, and that they wanted them also to have space for extracurriculars. And there's only so many hours in a day, right, and these parents were very aware of that, that their kids can't do everything um, to a, a really high level, and they have to make some of these choices. And they, they were employing their kids, uh, asking their kids to make different choices.
2: I was really interested in the aspect of your uh, book that talks about privilege and white privilege. And one thing that you point out is that the white parents in this school you studied were really, really, really invested in academics as the the sine qua non. It's the essence of high school, of this uh, highly motivated Really competent uh, cadre of teachers and administrators at a suburban, rich suburban high school, um, but then when uh, Asian Americans or began to well take the place of those white students in the top of the class, so all of a sudden the white parents weren't really motivated to go to the go to the bulwarks to fight for academics. As the basis for uh, school resources, but all of us, but then instead, extracurriculars became much more important, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that phenomenon.
3: Yeah, so you know, it's a much more subtle shift, I think, but there was this sense of, um, you know, these communities are sort of, I mean. First of all, this is a community w- in which everyone has a lot of privilege, right, um, in terms of economic resources, being in a community that doesn't have to, um, that has, you know, a, a well-resourced school district that also has fewer um, uh, issues that they need to deal with that are related to economic disadvantages. Professor, right? let me
2: ignore for one second. You want to identify what the community we're talking about?
3: So I don't name. Uh, so I'm, I I promise the community anonymity. Um, I call the town Woodcrest. Um, it's a town on the east coast with a large and growing Asian American population. There are many towns like this around the country. Um, the median household income is in the top 20 percent. Um, and so yeah, that's all I can say about. Okay. About so
2: you 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 use Senate, uh, pseudonyms. Uh, yeah, in, in 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 your book, race at the top, uh, yes. both for yes. individuals and for the town. But this yes. is, this is not an amalgam. This is a real place you're you're writing yes. about. Okay, that's right,
3: that's right, that's right. Yeah, based on a, a community, a, a study of one place. And so um, you know, so Asian Americans in this community are also privileged, right? You know, this kind of uh, concentration of resources in this town. Um, the adults have high levels of education and income. Um, and so this is all kind of setting up all of these children up for success. Now, so, so I think the, the white, you know, in terms of when you called said white privilege, I think the thing that um, white families had an advantage over was just a, a better kind of understanding, I think, of U.S. higher education, but also I think the the alignment between the school, uh, school leaders and teachers, most of whom, like everywhere in the country, are white and obviously college educated. That's how you become a teacher. Um, and so had a kind of shared cultural understanding of what should be emphasized, the importance of you know, extracurriculars, and so the school and the, the white parents tended to be more aligned in terms of what they should do. There was a lot of talk in this town about, you know, mental health, and again, this is pre-pandemic, this is obviously this mental, you know, so I think we forget there's a mental health crisis before the pandemic as well, um, And but parents have different ideas about what should be done, and the school and the white parents tended to be aligned in terms of wanting to reduce the amount of academic work, Um, You know, eliminating things like class rank, no naming of a valedictorian, um, these kinds of things um, to kind of reduce academic academic competition. But there was less talk of, you know, making extracurriculars more accessible to everybody. Um, You know, it's very hard to get on on the varsity sports team or even JV and on many of these teams um, because it's so competitive there. But that was not on the table.
2: We are speaking with Professor Natasha Warku. Her new book is titled Race at the Top, Asian-Americans, Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. I want to come back. And if, we will be back in just a few minutes. And I want to ask the professor about how did black students, African-American students, and those other marginalized groups from, well, nearby towns, how did they get into this game? Or do they? We'll be right back. Bill Newman, WHMP.
4: When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
1: This is Lori Grover, Senior Vice President of the Mortgage Department at Greenfield Savings Bank. This year's Buy in July Mortgage Special is just in time to help counter the recent rise in interest rates. Our Buy in July Mortgage Special offers you an incredible rate that will save you money on your mortgage. If you're in the market for a new home, don't delay because to qualify for your Buy in July Mortgage Special, your application must be received with an executed offer to purchase by July 29, 2022, and must close before September 30th, 2022. For more information on our Buy in July mortgage special, go to our website at greenfieldsavings.com or call us at 413. 413- to speak to one of our mortgage specialists. You can apply online or in person at any of our offices and let the Buy in July savings begin.
4: Greenfield Savings Bank's Buy in July special. Offer good on mortgages for the purchase of owner-occupied one to four family properties or condominiums. Offer is subject to change or cancellation at any time. See bank for complete details. Member FDIC, member DIF, equal housing lender. Greenfieldsavings.com.
1: At co-op.
5: This Monday at The Shea, The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. Zach Sherwin, from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Epic Rap Battles of History, bringing his incredible wordplay to a live crossword puzzle on stage at The Shea a panel of guest comedians will solve this actual crossword puzzle while Zach Sherwin takes us down a rabbit hole of comedy, music, trivia and wordplay. No crossword expertise needed. The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. With special guest problem solvers, Smith College's Dr. Jennifer Malkowski, the founder of Smith's video game research lab comedy has a weapon comedian kim DeShields, shields and me monty belmonte the crossword One show top with top zach sherwin monday night seven o'clock shay theater turner's Falls. Like, oh, 1015
4: 1400 and 1240 whmp news information in the arts
6: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
2: We continue our conversation with Professor Natasha Waraku, who is a professor of sociology at Tufts. Her new book is titled Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools. I'd like to uh, move away from the topic of Asian Americans and Whites for a moment. I want to, I want to come back to it in, ju- in just a minute. But I'd like to ask you about the part of the book where you talk about how African American. Uh, young people can or did become part of this educational endeavor and what their obstacles are and whether there really is in this liberal enclave with their Black Lives Matters and uh, everyone welcome here signs that they're not really very open to having students from poor communities and from other communities of color. So tell us how that actually works
3: yeah, so this, um, this the kind of a complex history um, in this town, and I think you know many like it. Um, so uh, you know first, I'll say that there are African American students and Latinx students in this community, um, some you know, children of families who live in the town, most of whom are professionals. Um, and the school also participates in a busing program, so the um, urban center. Um, where they have students coming from the, the from urban center bus into the school to go to the school um, and most of the black students are from that program and they tend to be um, they're more likely to be in lower tracks in the school school is very aware of this and has been you know talking about it and you know trying to to um, address this issue um, but it is an ongoing issue and you know I think this is no different from suburban schools all around the country, you know, whether or not it's through a busing program. And, you know, but if we kind of step back and kind of look at the history, I think it's, it kind of helps us understand a little bit more about what's going on. You know, a lot of suburban communities, including this one, were kind of created and and really grew in the 1950s, 1960s, as part of this process of suburbanization in the United States at a time of school desegregation, right? So urban schools are desegregating. A lot of whites are moving out to the suburbs um, and creating these kind of um, islands of privilege, right? And so on the one hand, it's racial isolation. These are predominantly white places, you know, with many, by the way, having these kind of racial covenants that say you can only sell this house to a white person, but then also setting up systems that exclude Working class and poor people as well, right? So passing local laws that say you can only build single family homes, saying, you know, this is the minimum housing, this is the minimum lot size that you can have. It's got to be big enough. And so all of these ways, you know, sometimes protesting. Um, plans to build public transportation to the town, all of these ways to kind of create the, you know, separate themselves from the urban center Um, and from working class, poor, and then, you know, African-American people as well. And so, um, you know, I think that's the history of towns like this. Many people are unaware of that history. Um, Certainly immigrants are probably even more unaware of that history, many of them. Um, But it creates this, structure in which um you know you have to have a pretty high income to live in communities like this um and so um and because there are you know if you think about it, even if you are a black professional a latinx professional if there are so few um people of your background in this community you're less likely to want to move there as well so it's a sort of ongoing loop right um it's sort of self-perpetuating and so um you know what I talk about in the conclusion of the book is that you know these families in this town, both particularly white and Asian American families, are engaged in this race at the top because, and you know, the, there's a lot of competition. They're sort of struggling to kind of there's tension over what's the right way to kind of help your kid, kid get ahead. But what they don't realize is that everybody's getting a medal, right? And they're kind of, the, the, the struggle is over gold, silver, or bronze. And the kids who really miss out are those who are, you know, well beyond the town's boundaries, who, you know, whose families can't afford to live in a community like this, who aren't even aware of the kinds of competition and the kinds of you know, um, standards of achievement that exist in communities like this. Um, and when we create this kind of segregated system by both class and race, um we we have this problematic kind of outcome where you know we're just we're in kind of different competitions. Um, and you know kids and parents are very unaware of this.
2: Well, this is a competition that many families, in this country would like to be able to be part of and can't be. Yeah. You're, 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 you, yeah. you, were, you were a high school teacher, um, you're obviously an expert on racial and ethnic inequality in education. I'd like to know from the, I think three years that you spent researching this book, um, if you could tell us what your conclusions are about whether there is some way to break this system break up this system, this self-perpetuating system of the rich get richer. Their kids uh, have resources that uh, poor families don't have, and those resources allow them a big leg up in terms of college admissions and life experience and all the things they do to make more money and or otherwise succeed in this society. Is there some, something that you've gleaned through all this? Is, ah, is there an aha moment where you say, I, I know how to fix this?
3: I wish I had the magic bullet, but I don't. But I, what I will say is that, you know, I believe in education. You know, I um, I have worked, my you know, my whole life's work has been in education, and I think that it is a really important avenue to social mobility. But I increasingly um, see the limitations of education. You know, we live in a highly unequal society in the United States today, and our inequality is growing. And what I've come to realize is that th- – with so much inequality, it is very hard to level the playing field. So I think along with, you know, school integration, along with, you know, you know, maybe ratable things like integrating suburban and urban school districts together, um, I think that um, school funding, I think that that what we need is, you know, changing our housing policy, creating more mixed income housing in suburban communities, um, you know, having um, a better social safety net, um, because schools are not you know, I think we, we in the United States in particular, we place so much on schools to ch- say, okay, we have all this inequality and the school is gonna bring, you know, um whoever is lacking in resources is gonna provide those resources and schools can only do so much. Um when there are differences in, you know, experiences of trauma, experiences with food insecurity, health disparities, all of these things um I think need to be addressed a lot more so that, you know, all children can thrive and have a positive educational experience in school. Um, And so, you know, I look at things like, again, housing, social safety nets, um, that I think will actually go a long way to creating educational equity as well.
2: In terms of educational equity, I'd be interested to know your position with regard to universal pre-K. Is that part of the solution to this? Because students who start behind tend to fall farther behind, at least that's my understanding. What's yeah. what's your yeah. view?
3: Absolutely, I think universal pre-K is a really important social policy. I think it's got to be high quality pre-K. Some of the research suggests that you know pre-K um, when it's high quality can really make a big difference in terms of long-term outcomes. Um, the research suggests so. Absolutely, um, universal high-quality pre-K um, I think is is a step in the right direction.
2: I, I want to ask you this uh, before we go. There has been an outrageous uh, amount of violence against Asian Americans and persons of Asian descent in this country in recent, in recent years. And I'm wondering whether uh, there is some way to reconcile the success of Asian Americans uh, that you write about in your book, Race at the Top, with this just vitriolic racial animus against Asian Americans that has manifest itself. Help me understand that.
3: Yeah, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this study and write this book was to kind of help us have a more nuanced understanding of Asian-Americans in the United States. Asian-Americans are the fastest growing racial group in the United States. Um, And so, you know, and, you know, I think sometimes conservatives use Asian-Americans to say, hey, you know, any kind of affirmative action or provisions for other racial groups is discrimination towards Asian-Americans. That's not true. Um, and that's just pitting people of color against each other. And so I think that's the wrong way to, you know, or they say, well, Asian Americans are doing well. So that means there's no racial discrimination. That's also not true. Right. And but the reverse that the, the kind of flip side is to say, well, there's no discrimination towards Asians because they're doing so well. Also clearly untrue, as the, as you mentioned, the racial attacks are showing. So I think we need to understand that racial stereotypes and um, racism towards Asian Americans is Qualitatively different than the kind of racism and racial discrimination experienced by African Americans, by Latinx, by Native Americans, and so, you know, on the one hand, there are these, um, you know, these these stereotypes um, and racism that leads to these violent attacks. There, are, there's also, you know. Um, there's some evidence of discrimination in corporate boardrooms. There's, you know, both bull- Asian-American kids are more likely to be bullied in school. There are these kinds of discrimination. Um, black kids experience different kinds of discrimination in school. They are more likely to be placed in lower tracks, you know, even if they have high skills by their teachers. are more likely to be referred to special ed and that has damaging consequences for them. And so we need to understand that there are different kinds of racial stereotypes and racism that different groups experience and have a more nuanced understanding of what that looks like and the impact that it creates on these groups.
2: We've been speaking with Professor Natasha Waraku. Her new book is Race at the Top, available through your local independent bookstore. Thank you so much for the book, and thank you for this fascinating conversation this morning. I really appreciate it, Professor.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Joe.
5: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
6: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Homeowners across the region are cleaning up downed trees and scattered debris this morning. Thousands of households also lost power for a period of time last night. Multiple roads were closed in Agawam and Westfield due to downed trees and wires. Further north, East Hampton and South Hampton lost power, with the Mima power outage map indicating 100% of households were in the dark at one point last night. After tireless work from power crews, nearly every one of the nearly 20,000 reported power outages has been restored. A federal agency charged with protecting birds is going an extra step by upgrading its northeast headquarters to prevent bird collisions.
5: The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says that it will install markings on the exterior windows of its regional office in Hadley that are designed to alert birds to the presence of glass. The agency also programmed its interior lights so they turn off at night so as not to attract birds. The service says private property owners can take similar steps to make their buildings safer for birds. According to the agency, nearly 1 billion birds collide with glass each year in the U.S. I'm Balmonte, WHMP News.
6: Libraries in South Deerfield and Orange could be receiving grants for some much-needed renovations. Tilton Library would receive a $3.94 million grant to be used for expansion and renovations, and Wheeler Memorial Library in Orange will receive $5.22 million for renovations. Both libraries have six months to match the grants, In order to receive the money, the grants would be coming from the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners.
0: Mostly sunny and dry today. Less humid but warm. Temperatures in the upper 80s to near 90. Partly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the 50s to near 60. Slight chance of showers on Thursday with highs in the low to mid 80s. I'm Nick on 101.5 WHMP.
6: This news minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media abruptamente planteando la cuestión de la manipulación de testigos, el comité del 6 de enero reveló el martes que Donald Trump había intentado contactar a una persona que estaba hablando con el panel sobre su investigación del expresidente y el ataque al Capitolio de 2021. Tomaremos muy en serio cualquier esfuerzo por influir en el testimonio de los testigos, dijo la representante Liz Cheney, republicana de Wyoming. Ella dijo que el comité había notificado al Departamento de Justicia. La persona a la que Trump trató de contactar se negó a responder a su llamada, dijo Chini. En cambio, la persona alertó a su abogado, quien se puso en contacto con el comité. La audiencia del martes fue la séptima para el comité del 6 de enero. Durante el último mes, el panel ha creado una narrativa de un Trump derrotado separado de la realidad, aferrándose a afirmaciones falsas de fraude electoral y trabajando febrilmente para revertir su derrota electoral. Todo culminó con el ataque al Capitolio, dice el comité. En otras informaciones, Twitter demandó el martes al CEO de Tesla y Musk para obligarlo a completar la adquisición de la empresa de redes sociales por 44 mil millones de dólares. Musk y Twitter se han estado preparando para una pelea legal desde que el multimillonario dijo el viernes que se retractaba de su acuerdo de abril para comprar la compañía. La demanda de Twitter comienza con una acusación tajante. Musk se niega a cumplir sus obligaciones con Twitter y sus accionistas porque el acuerdo que firmó ya no sirve a sus intereses personales. Musk y Twitter acordaron pagarse mutuamente una tarifa de ruptura de mil millones de dólares si alguno de los dos era responsable de que el acuerdo fracasara. La compañía podría haber presionado a Musk para que pagara la elevada tarifa, pero va más allá y trata de obligarlo a completar la compra total de 44 mil millones de dólares aprobada por el directorio de la compañía. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
6: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: This is Bill Newman,
1: WHMP.
2: A bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspapers, tomorrow's Fish Wrap. The New York Times, the actual physical New York Times front page, which I actually really like and like a lot better than the electronic version because it tells the the reader, at least what the Times thinks is important. And I was struck by this morning's paper, by the topics that are covered which we have been talking about on the show. So here are the four headlines, five headlines, that really got my attention. One, first of all, there's this extraordinary photograph taken uh, from the James Webb Space Telescope. Just, oh my goodness, look at these photos. And we will have on the show tomorrow Salman Hamid. Uh, to tell us what we are actually seeing, I had a brief conversation with Salman, who is in England at a conference today. But he will join us tomorrow morning, uh, the second half of the show, to talk about these just remarkable images. So, and good for the Times, putting a enormous uh, photograph image on the front page, top of the fold. So, in addition, Trump intended to send his mob to disrupt count, a last ditch effort panel. That's the January sixth congressional panel that's investigating panel is told he stoked and channeled rage of his supporters. I think this committee hearing is actually having some effect. Um, It will most assuredly have an effect if the the referral to the Justice Department ends up in the indictment of Trump, which I think progressively over the last few weeks seems more likely.
5: Well, especially yesterday with Liz Cheney basically closing the committee hearing saying, we are aware that the former president tried to contact one of our witnesses who you have not heard from yet, and they did not speak to him. They referred it to their lawyer who referred it to us, who and we referred it to the Justice Department. Basically, a shot across the bow of Donald Trump saying, we know you're doing this, and it is a crime to witness tamper. So just be aware, we are that has also already been sent to the judge. It's
2: attempted witness tampering, apparently, right. didn't get to do it. However, it's also what we sometimes refer to on the show here as a bad trial fact. Yeah. Because it is proof that he's trying to influence the testimony, which is evidence in and of itself of the crime of interfering with congressional work, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the crime. For, for which he is most vulnerable uh, to be prosecuted. It's really interesting because the Republicans say, we're not even going to participate. We're not even going to be part of this. Now they really regret that because the way the media works is that if there were Republicans defending Trump on the committee, every day's story would be, on one hand, the committee did this. On the other hand, his supporters said, oh, fake news, fake news, fake news, and they could repeat that over and over again and really could have diminished and diluted the effect of the January
5: 6th committee, unless the Republicans decided intentionally not to be a part of it because they knew how bad things were going to be and it would be virtually indefensible and to distance themselves from the former president. This might be there. They had ample opportunity during the entire time he was running and president and then during impeachment, et cetera. However, this may be one way for them to have just washed their hands of it.
2: No, I don't believe it. I think what they did is they said, we're just going to make this out to be a partisan witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, fake news, fake news, fake news. No one's going to pay attention to it. And they were wrong. Their evaluation of what would happen was wrong. And the Democrats actually, for a change, did something right and did this, as you pointed out, Monty, did this, which is to say conducted these hearings as a made-for-television presentation, and it has been extremely powerful. Here's another piece that is related, front page of the Times, and this goes back to our conversation with Josh Silver just a few days ago. The headline is, Midterm Race Appears Tight, Polling Shows. With President Biden's approval ratings mired in the 30s, he's got a 35 38% approval rating. That portends disaster for the party in power in the White House in the midterms. That's not what the article says, that's history. With President Biden's approval rating mired in the 30s and with nearly 80% of voters saying the country is heading in the wrong direction, all the ingredients seem to be in place for a Republican sweep in the November midterm elections. But Democrats and Republicans begin the campaign in a surprisingly close race for control of Congress, according to the first New York Times-Siena College survey of this election cycle really interesting. We'll do more on the show on that as well in coming days. Let me do. Let me make note of one other story. For DeSantis, that's Ron DeSantis. He's been described as Trump with a brain and is the alternative to Trump, who all the Republicans are looking to lead them to victory in 2024. DeSantis has rare silence on abortion. Let me read two sentences. When the Supreme Court erased the constitutional right to an abortion last month, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida was among the many Republicans who celebrated. The prayers of millions have been answered, he tweeted. But while other Republican leaders vowed to charge ahead with new restrictions or near total bans, Mr. DeSantis offered a vague to work to expand pro-life protections. And more than two weeks later, he is yet to explain what that means because overwhelmingly, the voters in Florida approve of Roe versus Wade. And so, as the Times article points out, to introduce a bill to make abortion less available in Florida, the present statute is 15 weeks. Doing so could undermine Mr. DeSantis's effort to recruit residents and businesses to a state and complicate his reelection campaign, not to mention his national ambitions, because polls show that a majority of Floridians and of Americans want to keep most abortion legal. In a New York Times, uh, Siena College poll, this week, US voters by two to one, or 61% to 29%, said they opposed the Supreme Court's decision, proving that an unelected, undemocratic, highly political, once upon a time judicial branch, now political branch of government, got it so really wrong. We'll be right back.
1: This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Hi, I'm Missy Tetro Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. If you're looking to buy a home, now's the perfect time to save on your Greenfield Co-op mortgage. That's right! We can save you up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. Don't miss the opportunity to receive a $750 closing credit, plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Chat with one of our experienced mortgage originators at any of our Hampshire and Franklin County locations to get started, or if you're ready, visit our our new website at bestlocalbank.com and start your application online. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Kimberly Gates, or me, Missy e. Tatro, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th Be a first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $1,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF.
0: You can count on your friends at the co-op.
5: In a couple of hours or less, you can be at the beach, toes in the sand, bouncing in the waves, which means fresh just off the boat seafood is only a couple of hours away, or minutes away, at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where the seafood is delivered direct from the fishing boats. Cod, salmon, scallops, no warehousing, it goes from the dock to the kitchen door. Try Paul and Elizabeth's fish and chips with that lighter than air tempura batter. Try the scallops, broiled with garlic butter and fresh herbs. There's no beach at Paul and Elizabeth's, but the seafood?
1: If your Spanish-speaking
6: employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among co-workers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100 percent of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton.
7: Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on Vaccine Clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down.
6: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
2: We have a few more minutes. We'd like to share a bit more of today's media coverage. Here's a piece that I found really, really interesting on the front page of today's Times. In many ways, the world is getting better. It also feels broken. And that very much does, I think, speak to a lot of people's view of what is happening in the world. Here's how it starts. Has the world entered a time of unusual turbulence or does it just feel that way? That's a question. If you scan the headlines, it's easy to conclude that something has broken. The pandemic, accelerating crises from climate change, global grain shortages, Russia's war on Ukraine, political and economic meltdown in Sri Lanka, a former prime minister's assassination in Japan and in the United States. Inflation, mass shootings are reckoning over January 6th and collapsing abortion rights. That sense of chaos can be difficult to square with longer term data showing that on many metrics, the world is generally becoming better off. And that is interesting uh, because those metrics do show that the world in many ways is becoming better off. But it sure doesn't feel that way, which is going to inure to Joe Biden's and the Democrats' detriment in this election cycle. And I don't know if that's... Well, I would say I don't know if that is really the feeling here in the Valley, but I do think it is. I think you get that sense from... uh, many different places, including uh, comments uh, on the uh, editorial page of the Gazette and and the Recorder, people feel distressed. Um, And part of it, I think, is reflected by what is not happening in media coverage of the Ukraine. There is a bloody, difficult, important war going on with Russia's having invaded Ukraine, and I defy you to find that story on the front page of today's papers. There's a war, a big war. Lots of people are dying. It's really important to the relationships between Russia and China and the United States and Russia's relationship to the world. It's really important to the question of, will there be enough food or will there be mass starvation? It's really important to the geopolitics of that, not only that area of the world, but to the entire world. And yet it's, it is somehow overwhelmed by all the other news in the news cycle. It, that would not have happened during World War II. Those uh, front page every day followed the war and the battles, even if nothing particularly important happened the day before. The war was covered because the war mattered. Um, and this war really matters. We are spending, the United States is spending somewhat, I think, the most recent. Uh, Allocation was, what, $50 billion for armaments for Ukraine. That's a big commitment. Um, Russia has taken over a significant amount of land uh, and is now offering Ukrainians uh, Russian citizenship. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is in this for the long game. He didn't do what he wanted to. He didn't succeed at having this blitzkrieg of taking over Ukraine. That was his original plan, but he has not given up. And he is counting on the Western nations to tire of all this, give up and sue for peace, give him the big chunk of Ukraine that he now controls and call it a day for the time being because he can always invade again. Where is that story? Why isn't it front page news? And I find the lack of an answer to that to be deeply disturbing. Monty, you have some thoughts?
5: Yeah, I think that it parallels what you were saying earlier about the like, sort of zeitgeist of the valley, perhaps, in the idea that there's so much going on that it is overwhelming and it is beleaguering. We all feel tired of the fight. We can't focus on what's going on in Russia and Ukraine because of all the things going on here with the January 6th committee, with the Supreme Court decisions, it was shocking to me that we weren't more shocked when Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court in Northampton, of all places. Yes, there was an action that following day, but that was about it. If you go on the streets of Northampton right now, it is like a normal summer morning. Uh, the fact that we're not constantly out in the streets talking about these sort of things to me, is a symptom of the fact that we have all been going through so much after so much war on top of pandemic, on top of uh, potential uh, coup d'etat in the country after four years of what felt like unbearable amounts of information from one party, at least here in Northampton. We're tired. And I think that that is becoming more and more evident. And it's a very dangerous position for... A, a region, a nation, and a world to be in.
2: I think that part of the succumbing to exhaustion is based on the fact that in Massachusetts, the Supreme Court decision is not going to have an immediate local impact. Yes, there are going to be people coming from out of state who may be chased by vigilantes from Texas. Yes, there may be a uh, prosecutions and attempted prosecutions of people in Massachusetts but it hasn't happened yet. Our state legislature and governor have promised it won't happen I'm not sure they can keep those promises but will they'll certainly will do their best. Uh, abortion is not only protected by the Massachusetts Constitution it's protected by the Roe Act which the legislature passed last year and it's not going to change what happens to, for the most part. This is not, obviously, there are exceptions to this. But for the most part, it's not going to change abortion access for people in Massachusetts who live in Massachusetts. And that lack of an immediate impact, while fortunate, and thank our state Supreme Judicial Court, that decades and decades ago, ruled that the right to abortion, to reproductive choice, was part of the Massachusetts Constitution, thanks to our state legislature legislators, uh, and our Western Massachusetts delegation for helping to pass the Roe Act. But absent an immediate impact, it, I think that it really dilutes the, the, the anger in some ways. Um, but it also, I think, brings to the fore some sense of acceptance of the unacceptable.
5: I think we're fooling ourselves. I think within a year or two, abor- abortion would be illegal across the entire country. Either the Supreme Court's going to rule that an unborn human is a full human with all full rights therein, or and therefore abortion the is illegal
2: because because there's it'll illegal. override
5: state law, or the Republicans will take the Congress in November and do what the Democrats had every opportunity to do at many different turns to uh, put it into law, so it wouldn't have been decided by the Supreme Court.
2: And, right, and, uh, and the Republicans are going to have no trouble. Uh, they're not going to have a Joe they're, Manchin moment yeah, exactly. uh, doing away with the filibuster because they have no principles. And they made very clear, we stole the Supreme Court. We stole it Their principle is to win,
5: and they do it very well.
2: Yeah, their principle is to win. And that principle is may destroy democracy in the United States as we know it. On that happy note, yeah. we want to thank our listeners for spending time with us today. Such a pleasure to talk with you, Monty. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for being with us. We'll be back tomorrow. We're going to be speaking with Salman Hamid.
4: on WHMP means polka polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits there are polka hits
5: brought to you by Saluzniak funeral home Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care
4: it's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon WHMP
3: Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us and each of us has a responsibility. Together we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org
4: the only live and local talk in the valley and for the valley whmp northampton whmq greenfield a northampton radio group station
6: it's 10 o'clock